It's January 28th. <laughs> Aren't you glad you found that out? You knew it. A couple of you knew it. January is almost done. We have 11 months in 2018. How many decisions do you think, if it were possible to tally them, are you going to be making in the remaining 11 months? And I'm talking about big decisions, little decisions, things that we probably wouldn't even think of in terms of being a decision. You just do it. But it is a decision. You have to decide at some level. Some of you may stress over the decision of the right shoes to wear with the right shorts. Some of you may stress over that person who stresses about wearing the right shoes with the right shorts. Some will face a new job, a more significant kind of decision. Some may be facing relocation, voluntary or involuntary. Some may be considering buying a new car or at least a new-to-you car or whether you should finally pop that question. And if that question happens to be popped to you, should you say yes or no? Some may face various treatment options for various and serious medical situations. And perhaps even this morning, someone among us in here today may have to consider and decide about their eternal state and future with a loving, sin-hating, always righteous, always gracious and merciful God. The question is, when you have a decision to make, how do you go about making it? Now, I think that some of this, you know, kind of depends on personality. I'll explain that a little bit in a second. Now, I'm talking about, again, big decisions, small decisions, but let's move to the weightier kinds of decisions of life. I'm not talking about what shirt goes with what pants, guys. That's easy. Ask your wives. <laughs> and ladies, if you want to know if something fits you, that's easy. Don't ask your husbands. Have mercy on them. Okay, I know I've, I ran that fairly recently, but I just love that. Ladies, don't put your husbands in that position. Decision-making. Again, I'm not talking about the smaller things. I'm not talking about when to fill up your gas tank. We all, well, all we, again, talking about, about temperament, all we type A's, we know when to fill up our gas tank, when it's, Halfway, you fill up your gas tank, right, Taipei's? Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to be 
a Mike Schimmel. You're like, a what? Mike Schimmel. Mike Schimmel was uh, in my platoon in the Army. He was an Army buddy-ish. What he did have was a new car, if you can call (laughs) the Gremlin. (laughs) The Gremlin. I mean, it's right there with the Edsel and the Pinto and the Chevette. But it was new. And we were at Fort Campbell, and he was from Chicago, and I was from Chicago suburbs. So he was a ride home. So it was a, a relationship of convenience, admittedly. He had some weird personality quirks. So one day we were out in the field for about a week on field maneuvers and all of that good stuff, and we were fully decked out, you know, airborne infantry, rah, rah, rah. And uh, we came in, it was about 4.35 o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday, and we decided that we were going home for the weekend to Chicago, okay? It's like an eight-hour ride, at least. And so we just walked right up to his car, took our gear off, threw it in the back of the Gremlin, still with camouflage and everything on our faces and all that, just gotten it, and we took off. Mike was the kind of guy, unlike me, that he knew exactly how far he could drive that car once the needle hit E. And I'm not talking about E, but I'm talking about the bottom of the letter E. Yeah, don't worry about it. So we're driving. It's 2.30 in the morning. We're in south side Chicago on the freeway. Those of you who don't know Chicago, you have no clue what I'm talking about. But you don't want to be there in the broad daylight when there's all kinds of people around, much less at 2.30 in the morning. So I'm like, Mike, I've been watching that needle on E for like, seemed like for 100 miles, right? Don't worry about it. I know, I got 6.38672 tenths of a gallon, and we are going to get to the next gas station. I'm just looking for an exit now. Just about that time. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. We're out of gas on the south side of Chicago, on the freeway, on the shoulder, stranded, complete combat gear with camouflage. I'm thinking, this, is, this just isn't going to work well no matter what happens here. So very quickly, though, <laughs> not surprisingly, I guess, Chicago's finest shows up. And I'm like, oh, man, what's he going to do when he sees all the and work? Actually, he was a really nice guy. And we told him what had happened, and he understood and all that. And he said, uh, do you guys realize where you're at? <laughs> and, of course, Mike Schimmel's from Chicago. He goes, oh, yeah, we know where we're at. And he goes, well, you don't want to be here. And we're like, yeah, we know. We're out of gas. It's like, oh. So, anyway, he was very helpful. He went and got us some gas, and we... I tailed it out of there. You don't want to be a Mike Schimmel, okay? Half tank, go fill it up. You'll never have that kind of a situation. Sometimes those small decisions in life carry much greater gravity than you might expect. We make thousands of decisions in our lifetime. The vast majority of those are fairly benign, meaning there's no significant or at least not any really lasting uh, consequence if we happen to make a bad decision. Many decisions, though, will be 
more important than the mundane and the routine. And even a relative few could be life-changing for good or for bad. So I'm talking about something more important than the routine sorts of things. So again, how do you make decisions? I, for one, just the way I'm wired together, tend to make decisions by way of common sense. Like looking at research, whatever the case may be of whatever it is, and gathering a preponderance of reliable information, asking the right questions where I'm able to, and then a phrase that I find lawyers like a lot, performing due diligence, which means doing all of that basically that I just mentioned. But some of us certainly, at least I hope, invoke the wisdom of God either by scriptures or by prayer or by both. And then even tossing in some outside counsel from a trusted source. All of it's a good plan. And like I've said, I don't think we need to pray about the mundane unless you have that sense in your spirit that perhaps you should. And the Lord has a way of doing those kinds of things. By the mundane, again, I'm thinking of the things that you don't really even think about as being decisions, but they are. I was sitting at the red light here coming from Shaw's okay, to get out onto KMD and to go back home that way on KMD one day. And I'm sitting there, and I'm the first line, uh, first car to make the left-hand turn. And, of course, I'm watching the light. This was before cell phones and all that, so I was actually watching the light. Mm-hmm. Ow. And so I'm there, and the light turns green. Now, I didn't sit there and consciously say to myself, perhaps you should wait and take extra time to look in both directions to make sure that everybody is coming to a stop. Not like anybody runs red lights here in Waterville. Holy cow. And I kid you not, I tried to go, and I could not. I kind of decided myself to wait, but... My foot honestly felt like it was being impeded from pressing the gas. And we're now talking about two seconds maybe, okay, that's passed, which is a long time when you're sitting there, right? And the light's been green. And before I could override that, whatever it was holding my foot down, guy completely blew the red light. I'm not talking about a long yellow, stretching the yellow. I mean just flat out blew it through. And if I had gone driver's side wouldn't have been good did i even decide to do that i'm not so sure that i did but anyway some decisions that are mundane can be pretty important we are in first samuel and god's children in first samuel had long ago departed from that relational aspect with the god of the universe while still yet maintaining their religiosity, their religious forms and practices. And don't we know from past messages that it cost them dearly? They just came through two wars with the Philistines, having lost over 30,000 of their men, and the Holy Ark of the Covenant had been taken, albeit at this point in time where we're at now in 1 Samuel, Samuel, the Ark has now been returned But it's only been returned at this point by the Lord's creative and compelling circumstantial motivation of the Philistines, causing them to freely and desperately wanting to return the ark to Israel. 
So where we're at is the ark's been returned and through all of the hard times that went with the people of God's waywardness, there is a mini revival of sorts with God's people returning to the Lord even as the ark is returned to Israel. What I find revealing in biblical revivals of the genuine type is that they are always marked by repentance. First and foremost, they are marked by repentance. And then, perhaps with signs and wonders coming somewhere after, if at all, but they are always marked by repentance. The singular telltale mark of genuine revival is the supernatural outpouring of faithful and joyful, obedient Christians, people of God, acting and living as if the Lord is their God and King, just as they return to the Lord with all their hearts. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, the first six verses, Israel has repented. And they have returned to the Lord, cleaning their houses of their idols under the instruction of Samuel the high priest, with Samuel telling them that they are to serve the Lord in faithfulness, and that as they do that, the Lord is going to protect them from the Philistines. Meaning, they don't have to be preoccupied, they don't have to be ignorant of the Philistines, but they don't have to be preoccupied like they were before, and forgetting about God, and just going through the religious forms, that if they follow the Lord joyfully and obediently as His people, He will take care of them. So they confess their sins to the Lord. And a worship service is held where the appropriate offerings, we are in the Old Testament, where the appropriate offerings are rendered. And it's really a high point. It's a great time for God's people. But we're made aware that even as there is revival in the camp, those pesky Philistines are scheming yet again. We pick up in 1 Samuel 7, verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Well, duh, they ought to be. They're reckoning battle thus far as Philistines too. Israel, zip. But this is different this time. The last two times they went to battle, They were very religious, but as I said, they were far from the Lord. The Philistines attacked and Israel gets beaten and Israel comes up with yet another battle plan. A bad plan for sure, but it was a plan nonetheless. So remember again my opening question, how do you go about making decisions? Israel's was to come up with a new strategy. They did their due diligence, they gathered their research, they procured the holy relic called the Ark of the Covenant, and based on their research and their due diligence and their intel, its presence was somehow, they believed, going to give them the ability to beat the Philistines. Well, we know how that turned out. Where they had lost 4,000 in the first battle that they had, they lost over 30,000, the result of their plans of their decision making now what was their major malfunction 
They did, after all, have a heritage of godly example from which to learn about decision-making in those wildly important matters of life. But, of course, the further you get away from the Lord, the further you get away from those spiritual foundations and those touchstones and those points. So they were long forgotten. What should they have been aware of? Because they knew their Old Testaments, at least some in the camp did, certainly the high priest. Well, to find out, let's go to the book of Joshua that predates 1 Samuel considerably. The backdrop for the book of Joshua is that Joshua was raised up by God as a very faithful and honorable servant of the Lord, unlike many of his predecessors, predecessors, and God ends up giving Joshua the privilege to take his people into the land of promise. So they're going into the land of promise, and God gives them, gives Joshua, to give to the people specific instructions, not suggestions, but orders on what must be contingent of their peace and prosperity, so to speak, of going into the land of promise. And that is that they are to go in there, and no exceptions, they are to drive out, by whatever means, to drive out all of the inhabitants of the land. Now, if we come to this through purely a secular mindset with, you know, geographical considerations and national politics and all that, we go, well, that's horrible. Those people were there first. Yeah, but you forget that God is the creator. It's his land. He can do with it what he wants. He can give it to who he wants, and he can take it away from who he wants. And he expressly gave it to his people Israel and said, go get rid of everybody else in the land. Now, is that because he's a mean God? No. It's because the other people in the land were not worshipers of Jehovah. And he knew that if they allowed anybody to remain in the land, it would come and it would eat their lunch for generations to come, dragging them away from Jehovah. And again, it would be disaster and catastrophe and not good for the people of God. God knows what he's doing. So they're ordered to go into the promised land and to get rid of all the inhabitants there. Well, the Canaanites get wind of the fact of who's coming into the land. And while they certainly weren't Jehovah worshipers, boy, they learned to have some respect of this Jehovah God of the Jews. They knew all about Egypt and what God did to Pharaoh and the mighty armies of Pharaoh in delivering his people. So they were not about to challenge that God. And so they come up with a very creative ruse, a scam, some way that we can, can be able to not be driven out of the land and just kind of live here peaceably. So what do they do? Well, they pretend they're not from the land. How do they do that? Well, they start taking their clothes and their sandals and everything, and they start beating them up and scraping them and making them worn out, making everything that they have look kind of ragged and bedraggled and everything else. And sure enough, they come and they approach Joshua and the rest of the congregation there of Israel, and they say, look, make, make a promise to us. We are sojourners from far, far, far away. Just make a covenant with us that we can live safely here. And Joshua is rightly... He's, he's, uh... And the text in Joshua 9 tells us that Joshua said, how do we know that 
you're not actually from these parts, meaning we have to get you out of here. And so, again, they create this ruse. And they said, well, no, look at us. I mean, come on. We, we've been traveling for I don't even know how many days or months or weeks. And, and, and look, I mean, you see our sandals are worn out. Look at our clothes, man. They're practically falling off of our bodies. And these wineskins that we had, holy cow, they were brand new wineskins when we filled them. And look at them now. They won't even hold wine. And some of them have burst. And our bread is all dry and crumbly and nasty. No, we're not from here. We're from away. So Joshua thinks about it, and the rest of the leaders think about it. And we read that Joshua made peace with them, and he made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them, an oath that they could not retract, even though that oath was made under false pretenses. They were conned big time. And part of me, a big part of me, wants to protest. Wait a minute, that, that wasn't fair. I mean, they can't hold them to that. Well, a covenant and an oath in those days was way different than a contract that's written, signed, and notarized with 18 different witnesses is today. No, they couldn't retract it. Well, it's not fair, but it is a cautionary tale especially in matters of great decisions. Don't go on common sense or due diligence or research or anything else alone. That's just what Joshua had done. Everything that was presented to them and all the answers and their explanations and the visible evidence, everything seemed right in their heads and in their hearts. But we read in verse 14 the problem. And here it is. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and they did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. (laughs) Mic drop. It is a cautionary tale. Back to Samuel. His peeps had been wayward with grave consequences. Their earthly wisdom, their common sense was suspect and unreliable. When you have been estranged from the Lord, when your relationship has long grown cold with the Lord, when your connection with the Almighty is merely obligatory, when you are still very religious perhaps and very spiritual, but there's no life there, it's time to repent, which means to turn and return back in the direction. Of God Almighty. You want to do a 180. Not 360. And I still get a kick out of it. Because I still hear it. People kind of get that confused. I've heard people say. Oh yeah. You know I was doing this and everything. But now I'll tell you. No I'm changed man. I've done a 360. And I'm like. Wait a minute. That just means you went like this. And now you're right back in the NASDAQ. Oh. Well no. You mean a 180. Back the other way. That's right. We got it down. No charge for the geometry lesson. Joshua did not ask the counsel of the Lord. Everything else was good. But he didn't ask for the counsel of the Lord. If you want a helpful indicator of your spiritual health, check 
the quality of your prayer life. Oh, here we go. Get ready for the drive-by guilting. You don't pray enough, long enough, often enough, relative enough, and sincere enough, and faithful enough. And faithful. No, no, no. Before you start twitching, let me remind you about some things about prayer. Because there's a lot of, I think, misunderstanding, mis- misconceptions about what praying even is. Okay, So praying does not ever assume a particular method or form or time of day or a place or a position of one's body. Just for starters, I find about 300 references to prayer in the Bible, and only five of those mention kneeling in connection with prayer. Five out of 300, that's hardly a dictate. So when we're thinking about checking our prayer life, don't get caught up in a particular form or method. Praying is simply having conversation with God. It can be audible, obviously. It can be silent. It can be at home. It can be in your car. It can be at school. It can be with someone else. It can be on your knees, but it can also be at the bedside or sitting up in bed or even under the covers. You may be supine when you're praying or prostrate, never prostrate. You can pray standing. Thank you. You can pray standing in line at the grocery store. You can pray standing in line at Walmart, especially at Walmart. You can pray while waiting in traffic or before a test or when you see those blue lights behind you. Prayer can be praising. It can be asking. It can be consulting. It can be singing. It can be stating or pleading. It can be with eyes open, especially if you're the one driving in the car. Or with eyes closed, you can be praying when you're with someone else and they don't even know you're praying. The late Dr. Howard Hendricks at Dallas Theological Seminary used to call them sky telegrams. I always remember that. It's when you're sitting there and you're talking with someone and you're kind of like, boy, I don't know where, I'm kind of lost here. We're going down this conversation. I don't know what to do. You just shoot up, Lord. Give me some wisdom here. I need some, uh, give me some clarity. I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't have the answers. Help. That's praying. So when Paul writes, pray without ceasing, as he does to the church at Thessaloniki, he's not envisioning monks in robes in a dark, dank monastery. He's not even picturing someone in a closed room and wooden floors with the imprint of their knees worn into the wood. And I have to say that the more you get into the habit of praying as a matter of course, not just in those emergency situations, the more sensitive your spirit becomes to the still small voice and a much better sense and awareness of the very real presence of God you will have in your life. And by the way, that's a really powerful deterrent to one's going off the rails. And prayer is a vital indicator of spiritual maturity. God's people in 1 Samuel have grown. And how is it that they've grown? They've grown through their adversity. Consider that just three chapters earlier in 1 Samuel, 
their first and second encounters with the enemy, again, was met. How? It was met with planning and strategizing and preparing and practicing. But now the Philistines are at it again, only this time. God's people don't first begin planning for war. Instead, they plead with their priest. Verse 8, 1 Samuel 7. Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, Samuel, that he may save us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Eureka! Lesson learned. Their first reaction now is to activate the community's prayer chain. Samuel acting as both priest and judge which again, in those days, the judge was not merely, you know, as we think, somebody in a judge's role in our society, but rather was the chief executive of the culture, of the community, as well as their spiritual leader. Verse 9, So Samuel took a suckling lamb, and he offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And what did the Lord say to Samuel? Well, we don't know. If he said anything, we don't know because it's not there. But there isn't a necessary passing of time between verse 9 and verse 10, meaning we are going to be shown what the Lord's answer was. Verse 10. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. God's answer to the prayers of Samuel on behalf of Israel was to defeat the enemy and now let Israel do the cleaning up, the light work. Coincidentally, Remember when we were back a few uh, weeks ago talking about Dagon, which was the, one of the key idols, one of the key gods of the Philistines. Dagon was there, they believe, was the god of the elements, I mean the god of all things natural in nature, meaning Dagon was the god of thunder. And so the Lord goes, oh, really? Well, let's boom my thunder in such a way that gives them this, this, and I, again, we can't really picture it. We can't really fathom what it was and everything else. But we do know from the text that God caused that booming thunder to be interpreted as his voice that sent the Philistine army scurrying in complete disarray. Showing them that God, Jehovah, is the real God of the elements. Do the people of Israel live happily ever after from the Philistines? No. Because the Philistines are relentless. They would continue to be a thorn in Israel's side. But remember the commander-in-chief is the all-knowing commander of the universe to whom military power and might and intelligence and strategy are irrelevant. God acting in real world ways on behalf of nations in battle is not uncommon. We're just not used to thinking or looking at the world through a biblical grid or worldview. The Philistines will come on the scene again later in the sequel to 1 Samuel, which is 2 Samuel, when David is now the ruling authority. And God will again use the elements of nature 
to bring defeat this time to David's enemies. We read in 2 Samuel 5 that when David inquired of the Lord, see, he inquired of the Lord, Lord, got to get ready for battle here. What should I do? We've got an army. We've been trained. We've done, we've done all of that. But Lord, what should we do? Should we even go into battle? And good thing he asked because the Lord said, no, you shall not go directly up. Instead, I want you to circle around behind them. Wow, you're giving them a specific battle plan here. Circle around behind them and come at them in front of the balsam trees. Huh? Yeah, go to the balsam trees. And it shall be that when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then you shall act promptly, for then the Lord will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. And David did so, just as the Lord had commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. When the all-knowing God of the universe is your ally and your intelligence officer, the enemy, any enemy of any size, shape, or what have you, does not stand a chance. The Philistines were subdued by God's power and might. Verse 12. So Samuel now takes a stone, just a stone laying out there on the ground. He took a stone and he set it between Mizpah and Shen and he named it Ebenezer. I had a dog named Ebenezer and I don't remember why we named him Ebenezer, but we had that dog just about at the time. We were very, very young Christians, Barb and I, that I remember singing in one of our very first church experiences, the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And I remember how odd the second verse struck me. Let me bring it and refresh your minds here. Or fresh your minds if it's not a refreshing, if you're not familiar with it. I'll give you the second part of the first verse for context. Come, thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Now here it is, verse 2. Here I raise my Ebenezer. I'm like, what? I'm thinking, you know what I'm thinking, Ebenezer Scrooge. What in the world is going on here? Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. And Ebenezer in the Bible is a monument. It is called a rock of remembrance. And it was erected, meaning taken and just stood up or even placed in a prominent place, by someone, usually of import, to commemorate a particularly important event that they didn't want to forget and that others, something that applied to more than just the person, that others should also not soon forget. It is why we have monuments in our day. We have statues, we have monuments, and they are all there to remind us of something, usually having an inscription. I remember that when uh, Barb and I, by intention, drove up to Dorchester Heights in Boston, 
didn't know what to expect, didn't really expect to see anything. I just wanted to get up there and be at the location where George Washington, after the phenomenal traversing of the Berkshire Mountains by Colonel Knox and all of his brave men captured the cannons at Fort Ticonderoga in the wintertime, dragged them on skids. We're talking now about some 20,000-pound cannons. Dragged them across the mountains in the wintertime, and under the cover of night, George Washington had those cannons mounted and set up on Dorchester Heights. Okay, why? Big deal. Because Boston was completely occupied by the British. Dorchester Heights, Boston, two miles away. When you're standing on Dorchester Heights, you can see the city of Boston. And I was amazed thinking, you got to be kidding me. Your cannons could fire that far in that day? But they could. The problem, though, for Boston was they couldn't fire uphill that far. And so General Burgoyne, if I'm remembering right, I may not, comes out. One night, there's nothing. The next morning, he wakes up, comes out, and there's all these cannons of all the Americans set up. And he's going, we're dead. There's nothing we can do. And that's when Burgoyne ordered an evacuation of Boston. And he is quoted, again, if it's Burgoyne, if it's not some general, I think it's Burgoyne, though. He said, Washington has done in one night what I could never have accomplished in three months. And there's a, so anyway, oh yeah, the point of that was, <laughs> sorry, I get a little off on these things. So we get up to the Dorchester Heights and there's this, uh, if I remember, it's like this large thing and a pedestal and stairs going up. And then there's this huge like obelisk that goes up into the sky and it's a monument to Dorchester Heights and the scenario that I just portrayed to you so that we don't quickly forget the extraordinary working of man and of God on behalf of the origins of this nation. Well, an Ebenezer again is called a rock, literally, of remembrance. I have an honest-to-goodness, genuine Ebenezer. It was given to me 15 years ago by a family here in the church that's in here this morning right now. Now, what's kind of uh, funny to me about it is that I thought, you know, what? I'm going to use that kind of as a, as a, obviously an illustration of what an Ebenezer is because it is a rock and it has a little kind of markered inscription on it. You can see some of that there. And I was going to bring it down here, but it's way too heavy. It doesn't look big and it's not that big. It's about like this and about like this, but it's about that thick of, I don't know, granite or whatever. And I started to lift it and said, yeah, no way. So I just figured I'd leave it there. But here's the thing. It's a rock of remembrance. You can see the inscription on there, sort of. But I had to contact the family to ask them, what was I supposed to remember about the rock of remembrance that I, yeah. It's been 15 years. Come on. Anyway, it's an Ebenezer. A crude one, but it's an Ebenezer. I still have it in my office to this day. <laughs> Honestly, I think I do, but it was too personal. Boy, is that a good way to get out of that one. <laughs> oh, verses 13 and 14. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. But like I said, that was short-lived. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron even to Gath. 
and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. So there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Solomon penned these words in the Proverbs and actually several other Proverbs that have a correlative uh, understanding of the same basic idea. In Proverbs 19.21, Solomon says, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Meaning, you know, there, there's... Please don't go, go through life just very existentially, never making plans, never giving thought to anything. Or No, it's good to make plans. But always subordinate those plans to the counsel of our holy creator who loves us and knows everything and wants us to walk in the right ways at the right times for his glory and his purposes. We have a good God, even in the New Testament, who is imminently closely involved with the affairs and the nations of the world. And I wish, I mean, I absolutely believe that to where I'm, I've staked my life on that, but I just wish it had a stronger present reality to where my splontnoi, that's the Koine Greek word for the intestines, which in the New Testament was the seat of the bowel, uh, seat of the bowels. The bowels were the seat of emotion rather than the heart. We talk about feeling it with your heart. They talk about feeling it with their bowels. Sounds a little more. Rom- think about Valentine's Day cards. If it, anyway, <laughs> forget it. Don't think about Valentine's Day. Anyway, that I would be relieved of admittedly much of the anxiety that I carry, and I know a lot of you do too as well, concerning global events and everything else. He is a God who is to be trusted and can be trusted. And he wants you to put him to the test. For his name's sake. Let me have you stand. I'm going to ask Paul Halley to come on up and close our time. Let's pray. Dear Lord, gracious Heavenly Father, Pastor Bill uh, mentioned the word relationships. And uh, compared to the Old Testament, Lord, we have a relationship with the Lord that is unique. We have the Holy Spirit living within us, Lord. And so my prayer is that uh, when we get headstrong and we try to do things on our own, I just pray that we would hesitate, pray, ask the Holy Spirit, what it is he wants us to do. Uh, If nothing else, uh, if that's not even good enough for you, ask somebody else and ask for their their, uh, their, uh, uh, I was going to say opinion, but that's not what I mean. I mean their counsel, Lord. There we go. So, Lord, I just pray that as we go this, go our own ways today, Lord, we would be conscious of your presence in us, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.